You are listening to a White Phosphorus Pictures podcast. Broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico, I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another Off to the Witch newsletter. For those of you who are just tuning into the show, the newsletter is an alternate version of the show. It happens every other week, and it's more of a freestyle um, observation on the supernatural, on cinema, on things that are happening in the world. And um, Lately, I've been finding a topic to focus on for each of these newsletters. Um, I also like to update you on um, things that I'm doing with White Phosphorus Pictures and anything forthcoming for the podcast. So one of the projects that uh, I'm working on, I have several happening right now, but one network project that truly is happening is South Texas Blues. And um just currently in development with it. I can't really say too much more because now I'm intertwined with uh, a network and a co-production company, and there are certain things that I, I just can't say at the moment, but I can tell you that it's happening for sure, and it's exciting, and um currently writing extensions for it because it's going to be a, a, a much larger miniseries. That's what I'm working on now. It's already a rather long script in itself, but now I'm extending it to perhaps six hours. So it's exciting. I have a lot of ideas for that. There's so much more to tell in the story. And um, I've always dreamt of making this movie, and now it's finally happening. So South Texas Blues, you're going to hear a lot more of that in the near future uh, when I can let the cat out of the bag. I mean, I'm able to say that it's happening, but I can't really say with who um, and who I'm collaborating with just yet. The topic of this episode, outside of the updates that I'm giving you right now, and I, you know, I can give you a few on um, A Haunting We Will Go. That's the first in my new series, my new investigative series, first feature-length chapter. And I've talked about that quite a bit. I let out a teaser for Halloween. And um, it's coming along so well. I'm working on three others, actually, side by side. and uh, But A Haunting We Will Go is furthest along. And, um, you know, when I work on these things, it's always been this way for me. I um, And even with Montauk Chronicles or anything I worked on before that or since then, is that I really feel like everything that I approach has to have a unique voice behind it. Otherwise, I have no interest in making it. It really isn't about the money. Um, you know, I have to do this also for a living, but it's... Um, I won't take a project unless it's right. And so the greatest part about making this new series outside of the network system is that I have full creative control. And for me, that outweighs anything 
in terms of the budget or how comfortable things would be for me or um, that I have to do less work. That doesn't mean anything to me. I love working. I, I, I work nonstop. So it's, uh, it's my nature to, to focus and my nature to work on things. And this is in line with the topic tonight of this episode because, you know, A Haunting We Will Go is a broad stroke subject. It's about ghosts and hauntings and Halloween and my love for horror films and how that all started and where it ended up. And it goes from the fictional world, which I was introduced to first, uh, to then a family tragedy uh, and then a family ghost story. And then it happened during my formative years. So all of that was hitting me at once. The horror films, the family ghost stories, and my love for Halloween and my, my love for special effects makeup and wanting to be a movie maker at a very young age. I think I was maybe six years old. I, I had made that decision and I've, I've never gone back. So A Haunting We Will Go first establishes that for me as a storyteller, like my other television shows, it gets somewhat personal, um, but it always stays on the topic. And the reason why this pertains to tonight's subject is that I don't feel like subjects are done to death in the portrayals of these television shows and documentaries and books even. I feel like many of them are done wrong. Let me explain. So we have these extraordinary things that have happened. I have had experiences myself, so I can't come in here um, much like the amazing Randy, who I like a lot of his presentations, but I couldn't be this staunch um, skeptic all the time because I've had some odd experiences and I've, I've had, you know, half a lifetime to, um, to go through these things and really think about what happened. And, you know, to this day, there really is no explanation for it. It had to have been something otherworldly. There's no, there's no easy explanation for it. In other words, there's nothing that I could just say, oh, well, I misinterpreted the sound of a radio or I saw a reflection in the hallway. No, I actually saw an apparition once when I was living in my apartment in Michigan. There was nothing else. There was no other way you could explain it. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't um, uh, someone in the hallway. Uh, it, it wasn't um, my imagination. It, I saw someone walk from one room to another and then disappear. That happened once in my life. The other time was many years previous when I was 14, and I heard a disembodied voice uh, speak for quite a while. It happened two nights in a row, never happened before that, and never happened again. Uh, so I hold those things with me. I've had these experiences. I do believe that science has already proven quite a bit, um, especially if you dive into quantum realities and quantum physics. But Outside of that, I think we're in a place of turmoil and change in the world. And I've talked about this before on the newsletters and on the show. And perhaps during those times of great duress, that people behave in, in certain ways. Now, I think that the, the subject matter that many people are covering 
uh, could be looked at in a different way, could be examined in a different way. And I'll go over certain current events and, and other things that have happened that I feel are happening in abundance. And I'm wondering why. Now, I can't say for sure whether or not half these people are lying, all of them are lying. I don't believe that. Uh, or some of them are actually telling the truth that they are seeing things. And perhaps there's a reason for this. Now, could it be conspiracy? Could it be it's being induced? Um, the, the broad stroke subject in A Haunting We Will Go and the subject matter that surrounds it, in terms of the way I approach things, every single subject, it could be something that's been done to death, right? Uh, but they're not doing it the way I would do it. And I see uh, certain television programs and even the way people approach this subject matter on YouTube or on book in books uh, seems to be repetitive. And I wonder, could, could they open their imagination for something more? And I can imagine a much different scenario. And so what I'm offering with this new series is that, is, is the epitome of that. I'm going to show you what can be done with a subject matter that we've been talking about probably since the dawn of human existence? Spirits, ghosts, hauntings, um, the evolution of Halloween, our love for horror films and ghost stories and, and familial ghost stories, uh, traditional folklore. All of that is in there, but it's all in the execution. It's how you portray it. That's where the real artistry comes in. Um, you know, a lot of the independent documentaries I've made, I've made with very little. I mean, Montauk Chronicles was made with, you know, I had less than $12,000 to buy equipment, bought what I had to buy, and I made the movie single-handedly almost. I had some great people contribute, but for the most part, I made the entire movie. And, um, you know, I didn't have a salary and I didn't have anything. I, I worked on that thing. And there was no guarantee it would be seen by anybody, that anybody would celebrate it. But to this moment, there are thousands of people every day that are watching Montauk Chronicles and um, over a million in, in a three-month period uh, collectively through all the streaming platforms it's playing on. So, And that's just recently. That's not in the 10 years it's been available. So it's amazing how you can reach people. And I truly believe that Montauk Chronicles has those legs because of the way it was made. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but trust me, there are quite a few people that appreciate it for everything that I did. And, um, you know, the majority of people watching it are, are the ones that um, have received it the way I hope they would. And so, you know, I stick to my guns on things. And um, so everything I approach has that unique voice. That's what a true filmmaker is. It's somebody who speaks through their artwork and it's not just somebody who's trying to accessorize and throw a documentary out there uh, haphazardly and, and not really think about what they're saying or, or the subject they're approaching. And so that pertains to our topic tonight. This episode is called Fairies Wear Boots because the modern zeitgeist reminds me a lot of um, the song Lyrics uh, written by Geezer Butler and Ozzy Osbourne, Tony Iommi, uh, Bill Ward. Um, the song Fairies Wear Boots for Black Sabbath. <clears throat> Essentially, it can be interpreted as uh, a couple of people high on acid and they're making a joke that they're seeing a fairy dancing with a dwarf, a fairy wearing boots. To me, it, I've always seen this uh, as a statement 
um, that somebody's so convicted, you know, the character in the story, which probably is Ozzy, is so convicted. He's talking to the doctor and swearing that he saw these fairies dancing around, okay? And that's how I feel with a lot of modern people talking about everything from modern Bigfoot sightings, the goat man, the dog man, the moth man, you know, every creature you could possibly think of, a menagerie of mythical beasts are now spilling into our reality and people are very uh, comfortable talking about it. There are communities of people supporting each other that swear that they saw these things. And normally, at least at times in the past, people would have said, no, you're lying. It's ridiculous. We don't see these things. But I've met people along the way that um, I believe them. I believe they saw something for sure. I didn't see it. I can't confirm 100% that's what they saw. I've certainly met some hucksters along the way because this is a racket. The paranormal is a racket. Um, you know, I can wholeheartedly admit that I'm making a, a, a business out of my artwork, but I believe in what I'm doing. You know, I would not have spent well over a decade working on two different Montauk movies if I didn't care about the subject without making a dime. You know, I was working several different jobs um, while I made that film. I had yet to work in television and... Um, you know, I used my skills to make money outside of that. I had editing jobs. I shot local commercials. I shot football games. And I worked for a security company. I worked for a whole bunch of different companies here and there throughout that time period. Um, and I worked for Panavision New York in the early 2000s. You know, I, I did whatever I had to do to make money and survive while I was making those documentaries because they didn't make me anything. So I cared about what I was making more so than it being a racket. It was well before the time of uh, striking on YouTube with not much to say, which I see quite a bit happening. Um, and so people can get on YouTube because it is a racket and they can sit there and they can tell these stories day after day and they have to come up with a new episode because that's what's uh, given them that free quick cash. And to me, I have an issue with that. I'll spend two years on a movie. I don't care how long it takes. All that matters to me is that it's done right. Now, when I'm hired by a network to do it, I have tons of help. There's an enormous budget and I'm getting a salary. That changes the, the, the game a little bit. But you could ask anyone that's worked with me. My convictions stay true. I'm determined to keep the quality in my television shows or any network project I work on. So everything I make is, is something I'm focused on, something I'll take my time with. We're talking thousands of hours of work, specialized work put into these things. They don't get made by hitting a button. The equipment that you use doesn't really matter. And anybody knows anything about movie making, they would know that a movie maker can make the same piece of work with one piece of equipment or another. And I've shown that throughout my career. So it's, uh, it's something that means something to me. And I've had time to observe the supernatural and the paranormal. And I don't see it as a racket. And um, I could never, I could never sit here and tell you I experienced something that I didn't or amplify someone else's story that I don't believe is true. And it's such an odd um, paradox because I believe that there are creatures out there that um, we simply 
don't understand and that we we have talked about in myth, legend, folklore, fiction. Um, I believe they do exist. And I do believe that there are people out there that have experienced things. What's unfortunate is because we have these situations that you can't explain, there's an overabundance of people lying. Like I said, for whatever reason, whether it be a racket to make money, they're lying to get attention, to fit in, to fit into some kind of club. You know, some people aren't, uh, I, you know, happy being uh, uh, an individual. I am. I thrive off of that. Um, I was born a lone wolf, so I don't, um, I don't mind it at all. I need it. I need it to survive. But some people need to be part of something. They can't handle their own solitude. And I suppose some people would just tell a tale to fit into a community. There's a lot of these communities that are out there that are um, supporting, I think, stories without any evidence. And uh, so let's talk about something recent, okay? For example, now I'm going to talk about credibility. I'm going to talk about a lot of different things in this episode. Um, but so here's an article, uh, NBC News article. Okay. This is not that long ago. This is the, everybody knows about this. This is the aliens at the Miami mall. And it says, despite memes and a flurry of speculation online, the Miami police department ruled out aliens as a possibility. I'm just going to read you a little bit of this. And then I'm going to tell you my thoughts on it and what I saw happen after regardless. And this is where trouble comes into paradise. Teens running police converging, and a gray splotch that appeared to be moving. Videos from an outdoor mall in Miami stoked wild claims this week on social media that aliens had landed on Earth. But the truth is far more terrestrial. On Monday, a group of roughly 50 teenagers caused a riot at Bayside Marketplace, an outdoor mall roughly five miles from South Beach, according to the Miami Police Department. The teens were setting off fireworks which led to a panic as some assumed there was a shooting, said Miami Police Department Public Information Officer Michael Vega. Four teens were arrested. Police were dispatched for crowd control due to the juveniles refusing to leave. Vega said in an email to NBC News, Some businesses were temporarily closed to allow us to clear the area. In the days after the incident, users on social media launched a speculation frenzy homing in on what they described as Miami Mall aliens. Some suggested police were responding to aliens, not teenagers. Several people reviewed video of the incident circulating online and claimed they could see alien figures in the grainy footage. Others quickly posted memes. So I saw some of this stuff, and I always keep an open mind because I thought it was strange. And to this moment, I can't tell you exactly what happened, but that's the official word, right? Now, from what I could see, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people in the area. And I would say at least, what, 75% of them, maybe more, of course, all had cell phones, all had cameras, high-def cameras in their hands. So if you do the math and you think about this for a second, if there were giant aliens walking around, listen, we would have video of it. End of story. And there would be more witnesses talking about it. There were a few kind of shady little testimonies here and there. Now, my issue with this is that headlines like this are distracting. They are misinformation and disinformation. 
They distract people from what's really going on and perhaps anything extraordinary that's truly happening. We go over to this kind of thing that used to be on the cover of Weekly World News. You know, tabloids sitting in the supermarket. You pick it up and it says, you know, I had a werewolf baby or something like that. Now, today, the, the stuff from Weekly World News is what people are believing. It seems like if any of these trusted whatevers out there that are running a racket say, hey, you know, I know somebody that had a werewolf baby. Trust me, you're going to find people that support it. If, if they say that, uh, you know, a fleet of asparagus people came knocking on my door and watched All in the Family with me last night, they're going to believe it. My, I have enormous problems with these things. We have to set standards again because if you keep supporting the most outlandish stories, we are going to miss the things that are important. We're going to miss those supernatural tales that are worth listening to. And um, I think an issue that I've had, and I've talked to friends uh, about this, that I feel have had honest experiences with um, strange creatures in the woods, right? Or, or near them that have approached them. Moving over to uh, the whole idea of monsters in the woods. And again, I've heard everything from the goat man to lizard upright walking bipedal lizard creatures to all kinds of things that people have said they've seen over the years. This isn't just in recent times. But recent times, there seems to be a deluge of these sightings, a deluge of sightings with no evidence whatsoever. And we have, currently, we have the greatest technology of all time. And these are easy devices. You know, I mean, I'm a documentary movie maker and a movie maker, and um, I know how easy it would be, even with your cell phone, to have it ready. If you had heard something, if you saw something in the woods, uh, I had a gentleman on the show, Dave Spinks, he's a friend of mine, who told a story of when he was a kid um, that he and his grandfather saw a Bigfoot, essentially, when they were fishing and they were camping out. Great story. And I've heard a lot of great stories like that. And those stories occurred when there was no cell phones. So you couldn't just whip something out and film. We're talking thousands of people now that claim not only have they seen a Sasquatch or a Dogman or a Goatman or whatever, well before there was an internet, well before we even had motion pictures or radio or television, um, well before uh, fiction was even written, people talked about these mythical things. So, and around the world and in many different cultures. So there must be something to it. Now, are we living in a multidimensional existence? And, and I have considered, are there people seeing these things now, again, for some reason? Is there some rift that's opened up, some doorway that's opened up where more people than ever are seeing them? And why are they seeing them? Why are only certain people seeing these things? I went on one Bigfoot expedition, you can call it. I went to, well, I went to th three different states um, observing, but I think one in northern Michigan can be an honest expedition, or at least an observation, right? I didn't spend too much time out there. It was one night, um, but I was out there with a guy named Joe Stewart, and he has had experiences throughout his life. And something odd happened that night, and you'll see this in the next episode of uh, Between Fiction and Reality, which is my web series. Uh, the first episode can be watched on the YouTube channel now. 
Well, the second one is um, is a completion of this documentary about the North American Sasquatch that I was shooting uh, just before I made the Dark Files uh, for History Channel. I stopped my work on it uh, for a couple of reasons, but I loved how everything was coming out. So this new episode of Between Fiction and Reality incorporates a lot of that footage. So we were, so Joe and I were walking and we were on a long hike. This is during deer season, but all hunters have returned. All the hunters had returned back to the cabins. There was nobody camping out. It was cold. And um, we're in northern Michigan. It's really chilly. And we're walking out there in the dark. And Joe uh, grabbed a didgeridoo instrument, wooden instrument, and started blowing it. It was silent out there. You couldn't hear anything. And he blew that thing a couple of times. And we heard a cracking out there. It was as if something was walking. Now... Do I know what it was? No. But what happened next was most curious. So we're sitting in this almost deafening silence. And what we heard was something making an owl call. Now, mind you, we're out in the middle of nowhere. There's nobody out there. There's no one out there. And we're hearing this crunching and this moving. And whatever it was, was big. It sounded heavy. It did not sound like a man. And then we heard this very odd owl call. <laughs> now, I've heard owls before. This sounded like something that was making an owl call. And then we heard another one in the distance. Now, you're going to get to see this in the episode. That freaked me out. Because just like when I heard the voices that one night when I was 14, or those two consecutive nights, and never heard them before or after, I had the same feeling. I felt like instinctively I knew there was something there. But to this moment, I can't tell you what it was. Joe believed that was a, a Bigfoot making those noises, a wild man, whatever it was. And that's fine, and I don't deny it, hundred percent because I felt something, you know, we were, we were walking down the path. We heard the coyotes leave their den. That was extraordinary to hear. You know, I, I love the entire aspect. I think anybody out there that's in the wilderness a lot, they, they love, I think they love everything about it. They're drawn to the wilderness and they're drawn to the mystery of it. And, but an experience like that was worth so much more. I, I've been thinking about that ever since. You know, I guess in comparison to some of these claims, I've had more subtle experiences, but they're so powerful. Um, and those are the type of stories that I think should be celebrated over, um, you know, somebody that says they fought a, a you know, a three-headed uh, werewolf goat man to the death. I, I'm sorry. I'm having a rough time with that because if you fought a mythical creature to the death, what stopped you from cutting off an arm or a finger or fur samples or whatever? I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense. So I, I keep hearing these two-fisted, uh, you know, pulp comic claims lately. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're silly stories. They're, they're ridiculous in comparison to the subtleties of the extraordinary, the things that Many of us have experienced that cold chill that runs down your spine when you're alone.
where you could have been in the same room 20 nights in a row. You could have been in the same room 20 nights in a row. But that one night, you don't feel like you're alone. And that you feel completely different. Um, when I was uh, a teenager, my buddy uh, had rented out like a converted barn in, in a farm in Smithtown, New York. And we would just hang out and tell stories and we were hanging out at his place and he started telling me that there were ghosts, that he would start, he would hear voices in Portuguese. And um, I was primed because obviously ghost stories are being told. And at that time, just like any other time, I have a head full of horror films. And, uh, and so my buddy tells me this story that these grounds are very haunted, that they were, uh, because it was right by a river. And that he said that different fishermen would come down here. This was uh, a tavern, used to be a tavern. It used to be an area um, where people would sleep and they would utilize the waterway to ship goods and items. So he tells me these stories. And once again, it's that subtlety. You know, he's telling me this story of how he's going out. And, uh, you know, part of the agreement he had with the landlord is that he had to feed uh, the goats and he had to feed some of the livestock on the farm and or check their stalls and so he was going to check the horses stalls and all these other things at night before it was time to go to sleep and he was out there and he heard a whispering in Portuguese in his ear now that would freak anybody out and so I started walking outside towards my car and I didn't really think much of it in the I'd say hour before, you know, I had sobered up and and I was ready to leave after that. Um, But when I got outside and I was alone, you know, there's just that feeling. I think a lot of you understand what I'm talking about. It's that, that feeling of instinct, that something's there, that you're not alone. You know, is it just your imagination? No, no, because I had been there so many times before. Is it just that he primed me for it that night with the ghost stories? Perhaps, but um, I heard a lot of ghost stories in my lifetime. And I spent a lot of time in the woods, too. And um, a lot of time in, uh, in creepy places, abandoned buildings we used to explore. And very rarely was I that spooked out. And I think that feeling that you have is worth so much more than um, any of these silly devices that light up that I've used. I used on my show Strange World, you know, because management needed us to use it. Now, I was against it. I was more interested in telling stories like my friend had told me at that farm that night. Uh, I had a gentleman on Off to the Witch called Zach Hano. He's a scientist. He originally was supposed to be in Strange World in our Deadlands episode. And um, as, as it goes in the editing room, you know, we shot a thousand hours of footage and that was cut down to eight hours. So you can imagine that we lost a few scenes. So, um, but I had him on the show and, um, and you can listen to that episode. It's called The Ghost Science. He is very interesting to me because he knows his stuff when it comes to these devices. It's not just a novelty. And I'm not against the usage of these devices. In fact, I support them, and there are few being used in 
in a haunting we will go here and there but that is it's such a small portion of the film but i felt like it was necessary to have these things on display however what i don't see in a lot of these ghost shows is an explanation how this works what's the science of it and what are the results because if a light just lights up it doesn't mean a ghost is in the room are we ignoring the natural devices that you have in your own physiology the devices that i had that night on that farm where i felt like i wasn't alone or the devices i had in my physiology that night in northern michigan when i heard those owl calls come back so there is an extraordinary world out there and there's a mystical world for sure i've seen it in in the form of many different things um you know, if we take, for instance, uh, the Wade Davis story, The Serpent and the Rainbow. Essentially, if you don't know the story, and again, this was a fantastic book that was translated by uh, Wes Craven into a horror film later. F fun movie, great movie, but somewhat abridged in comparison to Wade Davis's experiences and, and obviously dramatized. In The Serpent and the Rainbow, essentially, Wade Davis was appointed by a pharmaceutical company to retrieve a drug that rendered your vital signs completely undetectable by a doctor. Unless you really knew they were on the drug, you could find it. So in other words, the heart rate would be so slow, it, it would be undetectable. No pupillary response to light. In other words, the drug itself was used in Haiti by the Haiti gangster government, okay? And um, they would make zombies with it. There's also a spiritual aspect to this because curses would be put upon people they would be convinced was it a mind control experiment or was it truly a curse and do curses work and i have some experience in my life being around a variety of people and even interviewing certain people about the the mystical about curses about black magic about witchcraft and even prayer these all of the above can work and has worked to a certain degree is it suggestion is it mythical are the the hoodoo and voodoo masters just very imposing and that they plant suggestion in your mind and the rest is you there's something to this Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are those who say that this quiet town holds many secrets. Legend has it 
that beneath this very tower, a dark force had its eyes set on the children. We were told that what was going on there was for the benefit of humanity. What would you say to the people who say, well, all these children were kidnapped and murdered and you were a part of it? What would you tell them? Would you I tell did them? approve of it, but there was nothing I could do about it. They wanted a large number of programmed boys to be used for mind control operations. And there are others who say it's still happening to this day. I don't know, I for myself find it a little suspicious that all the evidence has been conveniently destroyed. Let's put it this way. If you're sitting there with 20 guns pointed at you, what are you going to do? Whatever the hell they want! Watch Montauk Chronicles now for free on Tubi, Plex, Roku, and available for download on Amazon and Apple TV. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. I knew a guy, I can't say his name, who um, some time ago was messing around with the works of Aleister Crowley. And this gentleman claimed that he conjured up demons. And um, he, um, he didn't have a very good uh, future after that. So, you know, I tried to ask him one day, you know, what, what did you achieve by doing this? I've always been curious of these things. You know, and he was so immersed in the works of Crowley. Personally, I don't feel um, anything is beneficial outside of information and history, because Crowley was, of course, a very interesting human being, but I don't think he was a, a nice guy. He was the, the real deal. He was a scary guy. And um, if you learn about his history, he, he, it didn't end well for him. And so... I think meddling with these things uh, from what I've seen and several people I've known, one, two of them are gone uh, and didn't, their lives didn't end very well. I mean, you can, it's, you can say that nobody's lives end well, but that's not true. I've known uh, people that I've loved very much that lived wonderful lives and um, died at a very old age in their sleep peacefully. So ritual and, and conjuring does it exist? I think one form or another it does. Can you weigh these things? Can you measure these things? Um, through observation, through record, there have been exorcisms on record. There have been uh, possessions. There have been collective people who have seen apparitions, scientists 
I'm using certain stories as an example, but I guarantee that you could find many that are tantamount to these stories now. I'll give you a few more examples tonight. One in particular that I feel science and the paranormal merged, and we have a great record of this, uh, was the Doris Spither case. And it, that was the entity haunting of 1974 in Culver City, California. Okay. It was a single mother named Doris Bither. Uh, she's portrayed as Carla Moran in the motion picture, The Entity. Also, the book was written by Frank DeFolita in 1978. And in 1982, it was made into a motion picture that was terrifying. I saw it as a kid in the early 80s, um, starring Barbara Hershey. The movie opens up with a single mother driving home from work. It's nighttime. It's evening. I think it from what I gather, it's post-dinner time. She has an older son, teenage son. He's in the garage fixing his car. She says hello to him. She walks inside and tucks her young daughters into bed. This is based on a true account. This is what Doris Bither told Dr. Barry Taff when she ran into him in a bookstore, the Bodhi Tree in California. And at that time, Dr. Barry Taff, at that time, Dr. Barry Taff was one of the heads and young scientists at the UCLA parapsychology department. It existed at that time. It was a serious department doing serious research. So what she told him was that night, she goes into her bedroom. She's alone after she said goodnight to all the kids. And she's sitting down and she's looking in the mirror and she's brushing her hair. And just like I was telling you earlier, that feeling came over her. That feeling that she wasn't alone came over her. And out of nowhere, something slammed her in the face. She felt like there was someone in the room. Now, immediately, if something hits you in the face and you're alone, your first instinct isn't going to say, a ghost, an entity hit me in the face. You're going to think something fell off the wall. You're going to be confused. You're not going to know what the hell is going on. Well, that's what happened to her. Something hit her, punched her in the mouth. She was in shock. And then, whatever it was, threw her onto her bed and sexually assaulted her. This is a story that a woman told with conviction, and a lot of people didn't believe her at first. Eventually, Barry Taff and his partner went over to her home and experienced a variety of phenomena in a very short period of time. There were things shaking, paintings, cold spots in the house, unusual smells. It intrigued them to the point where they organized uh, the leader of the uh, parapsychology department at the time, Dr. Thelma Moss, and they brought people down to analyze the area. They had yet to see anything, but they felt something. They heard things when they were in the house, and they were shocked enough and rattled enough to bring people to the location. Now, eventually, there was a full investigation, a scientific analysis in every which way at that time, this is the early 70s, but what they saw collectively, I think eight people in the room and photographed, an entity appeared and Doris Bither was being attacked by this thing. This thing was essentially raping her. She started screaming at this thing. It appeared. Everyone saw it. Everyone in the room. There was no holographic technology in this woman's house. This wasn't a hoax. 
there was no internet. There were no photo apps. You know, it's, it's hard for a lot of people to understand that these things didn't exist and that you couldn't hoax something like this. This department didn't hoax it. They all saw this thing. Such a powerful story. It could be examined and re-examined, further thought about, explored. And unfortunately, you know, these ghost shows, a lot of them, you know, you get four or five morons in a house and they're screaming and yelling and, you know, ripping garments off and all for the sake of cheap entertainment. Uh, and we lose sight of what Dr. Barry Taff was doing at that house and what his department was doing way back. And then in a way, we haven't gotten any further with this um, because what they captured at that house should have been furthered. It should have been further explored and understood and examined. And so my issue is, I think going forward, what's really important is that for any of the ghost hunters out there that aren't just doing this to hopefully get their television show that's exactly the same as the last 25 ghost hunting shows, should really start getting creative. Use your imagination. Speak to guys like Zach Hano. Um, I know Barry Taff is... Uh, quite retired at the moment, but there are people out there like Barry that that can help you explore this and get further evidence. Um, I've worked with several people that are in a haunting we will go, including Dave Spinks and Jesse Lisk, uh, and I feel like they've genuinely acquired worthwhile information. And the stories being told from people that I talk to in the documentary I feel like we've done something different and we've done a service to not only good storytelling, but um, to the science of exploring our experiences, exploring the phenomena of seeing, feeling, hearing these disembodied entities. So if you're to explore a haunted location, you know, my challenge is get creative. We do an experiment in one of the locations. And again, this isn't you know, A Haunting We Will Go isn't a ghost hunting documentary, but there's some interesting things we do. And um, there was one experiment that I, I came up with that I had never seen anybody do. You know, the idea came to me from Richard Matheson's story. He wrote a lot of great Twilight Zone episodes, uh, and he wrote I Am Legend. Uh, Richard Matheson, he wrote um, What Dreams May Come, but he wrote an incredible story called Somewhere in Time. If you ever saw the, like the movie adaptation of that story, uh, Christopher Reeve, time travels by adorning the um, clothing of a certain time period, laying in the bed of a certain time period, and meditating uh, in a home that hasn't changed much, that was preserved. And I wonder if we would try things like that. So the idea that I... I used in A Haunting We Will Go, um, the experiment that we tried at the end was very much inspired by that way of thinking. And I won't reveal it just yet, but I think more people should try things like that. I think we should think on metaphysical levels, because perhaps we would have better experiences than just running around with 50 people yelling and screaming and challenging ghosts. Uh, you know, those that's hogwash and... Um, I have a feeling those those type of shows will die and and you know thank goodness right um yeah just imagine a better scenario there's so many of you um, ghost hunters out there that uh you have access to things try different things really um get creative get imaginative you know i think solitary experiences might work and um personally 
you know, from the experience I had when I was 14, I wouldn't mess around with trying to pick up hitchhikers, if you know what I mean. Because the disembodied voices that I heard when I was 14 began at a friend's house. We had a sleepover. And um, I started to hear it there at that location. And whatever it was followed me. Don't know how it can follow you, but I've heard of this before, that an apparition can attach itself to you. And I think that's what happened because the next night at my parents' house, and I've told this story before on, on a couple of different episodes, I heard it again. I never heard it after that, but whatever it was followed me from one location to another. I think if you go into a lot of these locations, as I did even in Strange World, I there were some things I just refused to do. Um, I was at a lot of these haunted locations, and what I was truly worried about was picking up another hitchhiker. Our field manager at that time, she actually did, and she didn't want to come back to one of these shows after. She wasn't interested. She had an offer for a, a decent job on another popular uh, paranormal-themed show, and she didn't take it. I think she was so spooked by what happened at some of the locations we went to and at what followed her to the hotel. Um, and so do I believe in the supernatural? I think you know the answer to that. But do I believe that everybody is credible? No. You know, we've had credible witnesses throughout history. Um, we've had you know, astrophysicists like Edgar Mitchell, who was one of our Apollo mission moonwalkers, had talked about the interactions with extraterrestrials and things that are being held and concealed, documents that are hidden from us, experiences and interactions that we've only dreamt about or have only heard about in science fiction. Well, Edgar Mitchell confirmed a lot of these things. And there are so many credible Air Force pilots and people throughout history in terms of ghost experiences, I mean, just about every family has a ghost story. Uh, so many people have had some experience or another. You cannot deny there's something else happening in this world. But the thing that doesn't help us is uh, fairies wear boots, if you know what I mean. It, it was uh, well over a year ago that I interviewed the grandson of Anton LaVey. Anton LaVey, for those of you who don't know, was the author of the Satanic Bible. And his grandson, Stanton, lived in the famous Black House in San Francisco where Anton LaVey and his family at the time resided um, when he was very young, when he was a child. And so Stanton tells a ghost story, something that he saw just after an earthquake standing in his doorway. It's creepy. Um, I want you to hear it. It's an interesting story from a man. Unfortunately, Stanton passed away uh, not long after that interview. This is a man who cared about animals and wanted to help uh, and, and re help rehabilitate homeless drug addicts. This wasn't an evil man at all. And uh, so I think you'd find his uh, two-part interview quite interesting. If you want to listen to it, you can hear it right now on any of the podcast platforms, but I will be uploading it to uh, YouTube shortly for those of you who prefer YouTube. So I ask uh, anybody out there, celebrate your opportunity to explore the unknown and imagine unique scenarios, and I believe that you would have the greatest results. I think the greatest results are going to come from not repetition, but from being very creative, being very imaginative with your explorations. 
And that includes going into the woods looking for these odd creatures. Personally, I don't know if these things are dangerous or not. So I would, um, I mean, look, on, on my way out of this, if someone were to ask me, what is the best case scenario for finding a Bigfoot or a goat man or whatever people claim is out there? I think it would have to be at least a month-long expedition. You'd have to prepare for it. I think you would need expert trackers with you um, and perhaps a base camp situation. So for anybody that's not versed enough in survival, that's versed enough into kind of stealth observation, stay back at the base camp. Go in for a period of time and set up maybe a series of different cams and maybe send in one or two very well-trained trackers that you're going to commission for this thing or that'll agree to partake in this with you. And it would have to be a month, I think, carved out. I mean, maybe you would even need more time. I'm not sure the exact amount of time that Diane Fossey took to find the mountain gorilla, but I don't think it was a weekend in the woods. So... What I'm saying is if it took that long to find those primates that do exist, okay, um, don't you think it's going to take a little bit longer to find more extraordinarily um, unique creatures? I believe that the variation of a Bigfoot exists somewhere, but it, they're certainly not easy to find because, uh, you know, hey, 85 seasons of finding Sasquatch or whatever, mountain monsters, mountain hillbilly killer, monster killers, monster plumbers looking for Bigfoot, all this other stuff. Listen, you haven't found anything. So none of you are experts. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear another word from anybody that claims, if you're an expert, show me your find. I want to, I want to see it. I want to see what you found because I don't believe you and you're not an expert. So what I'm saying to the people out there that want to find these things, and I'm a believer, trust me, I, I'm waiting for someone to really form a solid expedition. Put one together. Take your time with it. You know, people plan weddings two years in advance. I think you could plan an expedition for a couple of years. Stop banging out these silly episodes and put something together. Find the right people. There are military people, there are trackers, there are people that probably would participate in this and that set up a base camp. And what a wonderful thing you could have. You could have a base camp set up where you're communicating with everybody else online. You could do live streams from the base camp, do interviews from the base camp with credible people that have run into these things and check in throughout that month's period with your trackers that are staying out there. I mean, you could crowdsource money to fund something like this. There's going to be plenty of people that want to see it happen. So that's my suggestion to any of you all that are out there. That is not my interest or my focus. I actually have a, a Bigfoot Sasquatch type miniseries that I've been planning for years that um, is so different that I won't tell you about because there's a lot of thieves out there. But, I th but I'll give you this one. Go make this, this expedition. Somebody out there is listening. Go start this expedition. I mean, don't worry about the money. The money could be crowdsourced because I'm sure there are thousands of people that would love to see this happen. And really think about what the ideal situation would be like. And don't let your ego take over and say you have to be there on the expedition. You do not. Send the very few experienced people out 
pick the location strategically. I think the full expedition should be a month's time. And perhaps you might be the first to really find the most solid piece of evidence, indisputable evidence. Now, do I believe that uh, somebody should shoot one of these things? No. You know, I know Grover Krantz, scientist, anthropologist, said that he wanted to and would have for the sake of science. That's the thing that upsets me the most. Uh, if this elusive creature and this elusive species does exist, they don't want to be found. So part of me is like, leave them alone. But if it's for observation, if it's just catching a glimpse, perhaps there's a way you can do it. And I think an expedition like the one I'm explaining is the only way. Otherwise, it's a big waste of time. I don't believe in three people walking out for a weekend hike, you know, or an, or an overnight hike, banging pots and pans and smacking trees is the answer. It's not. I think this expedition should be organized perhaps amongst the greatest enthusiasts that are around right now that actually give a damn about proving this thing, that you probably could, that you probably could find really significant evidence by going deeper, by spending more time because I don't think anything like this has been done. And, and hey, if any of you out there feel like there has been an expedition like this that went on for a month's time, that had these great resources behind it, remind me of it because I never heard of it. So, folks, I'm going to get back to work. I appreciate you listening to my rant tonight. Next week, I'll return with a brand new episode of Off to the Witch with a new guest. And I will see you next time. Take care. Mm -hmm.